to Say That, the podcast for your big questions, get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. And joining me here is Glenn Fitzgerald, the founder of Mission USA. We go on three. It's not one, two, three, and go. That makes no sense whatsoever. That's going on four, and I stand by that assessment. Glenn has exactly one principle, and that's it. He will not bend. Yep. It's very specific. Joining us also is Director of Mission USA Productions, Jed Brewer. And a one and a two and a three. <laughs> yes, Glenn believes eighth notes are of the devil. He doesn't care for <laughs> that's it. True. That's right. Joining us all the way from Rutgers, Tennessee, one of the pastors of Christ Community Church, Lee Younger. You put the cereal first and then the milk. Come it's on. that simple. Come on now. <laughs> look, I, look. There, are, we we're dealing with a lot, but you can't skip over the counting in on the show controversies. When we're doing a count in, it has to be right. Now you say that we've done the exact same count in for eight years of doing this show. <laughs> That's right. And every once, in, like once every quarter, I'd say Glenn remembers that he hates it and decides to gripe about it. Well, what it is is I hold I I silently bitterly resent it. I'm not sure you know what silently means. And I, and I none taken. There and I tell, I put that down inside myself <laughs> and let it build and build and build. Oh. And, until it just comes out in a rage. You know there is a groundswell uh like dark web a blog that says the rest of the hosts on the podcast count in this way just to give Glenn something to gripe about on there Thanksgiving. There it is. That's ah, right. The reason for the season. We're talking once again. We're carrying over from last week with the darkness, with the conspiracy theories. And that leads me to declare a conspiracy theory emergency. Whoa. Wow. wow. But a positive one. Much of, Who's uh, paying oh. you, Matt? Whose pocket are you in? <laughs> Big hair. <laughs> yeah, that's conspiracy theory of its own. Big headband doesn't want you to know. That's right. The headband sponsorships are coming thick and fast. I'm holding out for that McEnroe money. That's going to be an age-dividing line joke, but I stand yeah. by it. We you could have are... gone with LeBron. So we're so deep in the conspiracy theory thing. If you tuned in last week, we talked about it in a very serious way. So now I'd like to talk about it in an insane and crazy way. The way we tend to do. Um, so we know that people love the conspiracy theories. They love sharing them. They love indulging in them. Uh, so last week, we, we, I think we spent 45 minutes having a, a clear-eyed, a, a mature, a helpful discussion about the, the ideas behind that, the ideas we can use to combat that in our own lives, to love the people that are around us. Now I'd like to toss all that out and talk about ways we can judo it for our own profit. Ah! ah. Um, and our own benefit... So this is inspired by one of the, the single best things I've seen on the internet in a long time, which is someone who was clearly trying to do a reverse conspiracy theory to get people to do something responsible. Okay. And it was just oh. a, a picture of like a, a CCTV camera, and it said, the government puts facial recognition cameras everywhere. The only way to foil them is to wear a mask over your nose and mouth when you're in public. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> And that's the kind of thinking I think we can really lean into, particularly in the realm of human behavior and maybe even church stuff, because, you know, the places are going to open back up. We're going to get back to doing church normally soon. And 
that's a good moment for a reset. People are very conspiratorial. I'm thinking we can plant some ideas. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's for sure. I mean, ultimately, what we have out there are a lot of bad ideas that are destructive. It's about time we had bad ideas that are constructive. Yes. Yeah, we, we can't wait out we can't wait around for people to only take in good ideas because we don't have that kind of time. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean who who even has good ideas? Well, I certainly don't, and that's why I'll start us off with a bad one. Okay, Thank you. that's oh, what I'm talking good. about. There's a global conspiracy to mm. prevent Christians from bringing more Christians by way of children into the world. Right? Whoa. Okay. Oh. The only way to fight back is to ask someone out. Wow. Yeah. That, that, there's That's... a logic to that. Right. They right? want you to kiss dating goodbye. That's, That's right. For their own the only way to fight back purposes. is to actually kiss someone. Well, you know the guy who said kissing is bad isn't technically, like, still a Christian, I don't think. So that kind of holds up. <laughs> well, I think in order to build the good conspiracy theory, you have to have the who benefits. You have to have the, the shadowy, you know, the Pentaveret, the, sure. the, you know, the Skull and Bone Colonel Society. Absolutely. I think we can, we can pitch that, you know... They don't want. They want you to kiss dating goodbye. This conspiracy, kicked around by Bill Gates, who founded Microsoft, who makes the Xbox. Oh, there it is. The there it big is. Xbox doesn't want you asking out another human being. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, because you know, uh, there's a lot of. Uh, and it's important to to use sensitive language here, but there's a lot of stuff out there that's just bonkers. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's really up to us to have the genius ideas on how to deal with it. I think anything that involves uh, tricking Christians into behaving, we ought to be looking at. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and specifically because into behaving ways we want them to. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, actual research, and I mean down to proof from the most reliable polling agencies that exist, have demonstrated the main thing driving people away from churches is how Christians act. So true. So let's, if we got a trick, it's like I'm tricking you. But it's to save you from your own, uh, you know, whatevers. Sure. So I think I think that sounds pretty good. It's like the Dude. ends, like justify the means. Dude, we need we need to get. I, I want to get Matt's brain on this because I know this is an issue that's very near and dear to Matt's heart. How do we get? How do we fool Christians with a conspiracy into being nice to and tipping well? Uh, waiters at restaurants. Oh, oh that's good. That's, that's very good. good. And and so that everybody, so that the reputation changes of like, you know who treats uh, waitstaff great at restaurants? Those Christians, man. Yeah. 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 We do need a good. Now, now, what level of zany should this conspiracy be? <laughs> I mean, how whatever gets there... whatever gets the work done, Jed. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. Okay. Okay. So we care about outcomes. This is what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. like, 
you know, like maybe they're putting Christians in camps because the rumor is they're not tipping well. Okay. <laughs> so they're being persecuted. Yeah, um, the persecution. You can't you can't vote because they're passing a law because Christians aren't tipping well. Well, I think there's there's certainly that that we could, we could probably ride the wave of the current um, conspiracy theory mania, which is mm. you know we as the uninitiated, the people without the secret knowledge, the rubes, the the pigeons yes. would look at uh, you know restaurants being closed in uh, states that have high coronavirus uh, conductivity. And say, well, it's a very controlled space and food service is very, you know, you can obviously pass a lot of pathogens, so it's just a responsible thing. But apparently it's because there's a conspiracy against, like, lunch. (laughs) Right. And certain ex-presidents, I don't have to name which ones, but you know which one, uh, wants to get rid of lunch because it's mentioned in the Bible, I guess? So the only way to save lunch is to make it so that it's so profitable. Yes. Oh. That lunch on Sunday has to be the time when restaurants and the servers who work in them make the most money so that they can't steal lunch in some kind of satanic ritual. That's good. That's That's good. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I like a satanic ritual angle. And it's, uh, it's good that you, I'm glad you, you realized you needed yeah, another word, the word ritual at the end of that <laughs> sentence. Well, no, I like a satanic ritual was just kind of hanging there. Yeah. And then Glenn realized Angle. he needed another word. So he didn't just say that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that, you know, that could kick off a, an angle right there because, you know, we got fellas, we got to figure out a way to do this in a way that benefits us. That's super important. Right. So could we start like a conspiracy theory that secretly I turned satanic and then you guys like use such powerful wisdom that you flipped me back? Uh-huh. Okay. Because you could get a lot of attention off of that. Sure. Well, yeah, I think there's a certain like uh, Paul is dead theory there. We can mm-hmm. just get people listening to the back catalog of there's there's a series of episodes in which Glenn is satanic. That's but he right. Doesn't even he have to, to be satanic and really figure it out. Yeah. All he has to be is on science, I think, to yeah. really get that thing moving. That's how you identify a satanist is they 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 believe in geology. <laughs> Like, they'll go through the back catalog of the... And at some point, I use the word igneous. And they're like, whoa, that's totally satanic. Because <laughs> it comes from fire in the pit of the earth. And it's science Satanism. For some awesome. reason, a guy makes a 12-hour YouTube video about that one 15-second span of audio. That's right, and you know, do do audio analysis and what's happening in the background, and then we just, yeah, we come out and like, yeah, that's it, you, you got us, uh, but we flipped him back, and so just the, crisis the, averted. The score of the YouTube video is just the X Files theme over and over <laughs> yes. again. That's right. That's yes, right. It's, a, it's a negative image. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think that'll work because you know people people like a good controversy. 
Indeed. That's what fires some of the conspiracy theory, probably. Well, I don't know if you guys know this, but the Internet is now 99% of me looking for things to be enraged about. (laughs) And, like, if you don't find anything to be enraged about, you're like, this website stinks, and you move to the next one. (laughs) So uh, we could just get people really upset and get them enraged and and talking about it and then flip it back and then it's uh you know it's then the people who are enraged on one side can be like i told you so to the people on the other side it's all good you know it just keeps going forever yeah we, like we've it. we've wandered away from conspiracy theories now and glenn is just describing the way marketing works <laughs> in the year 2020 <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I I got a zine. It's not a conspiracy yet, or ah, is it? We can get there. But I I think I I may have a product offering just off of what Glenn's saying that I think could really be good, and that is it's it's a website I guess where you sign up. But the, the point is, you want to be upset. That's what you're looking for. You want to be enraged. So you pay us, and we just come to your house and slap you. Okay. That's wow. it. That's that's the whole thing. Or right. or kick you in the shins. Right. Either way, yeah. But we just, and then you get the experience of being angry and upset. You get the thing that you wanted. We just deliver it straight to you. Plus, it's got the personal touch. Well, you got to have the video of it so they can put it online to do sure. the shaming. Or shaming is <laughs> an essential part of this, Jed. You can't do it without the shaming. I I think what you're talking about, Jed, and and it took me a while to figure this out, but I think you're talking about frenemies. Uh, sure, yes. Which I thought those were the people who lived on Dune. <laughs> but it, I think it, it, it's like when you agree that you, you know, start a thing and there's beef and it goes crazy and everybody takes a side. We need to get one of those going. I, I, that's, that sounds awful. Well, I, I would like to take Jed's idea of, for a weird kind of um, guerrilla theater Shakespeare in the Park version of Jackass, which is what he sounded like he was pitching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. That's exactly. That show would sell tickets. Smash drywall over your head or something. Um, yeah. But so there, there was a weird thing, like hippy-dippy thing. Anybody remember like primal scream therapy? Yeah. 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 That was like a thing that got covered. I think a Christian version of that where you come to some like wooded retreat – and we just read Facebook posts of people you disagree with politically. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Just so you can really stew in the anger. Yeah, yeah. You, and then you give your barbaric yawp. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Or the rooftops of the world. Yeah, indeed. I think because this is what – I don't know if I mentioned this to you guys, but Jed is the worst. I, I agree. That's true. See, I'm doing a bit there. Right. No, it's true, though. <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> Jed's the no. You have to disagree. Jed's the worst, oh, y'all. I'm. He's I, the. How he dare hates, you? He, he, and how you know what? How dare you? How dare you, <laughs> sir? I am actually the best. I don't know at what, but I am the best. But I, I just, I hate you. <laughs> I don't feel like I don't think we're doing it right. I, I don't feel yeah. like your heart's really in it. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, I just, you know, because I like Jed, there's that, but it's also, you know, I, I, I don't like being enraged as much as other people, I don't think. 
Well, you know, maybe with time, your rage could grow. Yeah. <laughs> I'll I'll work on it. <laughs> now, I, and I, it's all great stuff. I do want to pull around to one more thing. Back to the secular humanist trying to destroy Sunday lunch. Yes. Mm. I think we can also get the people fired up at pastors about this. Okay. Because if pastor goes a little long on this sermon... They're not going to be in room oh. at the restaurant to okay. have lunch. So you're not in league with the anti-lunch Moloch worshipers, are you, Pastor? <laughs> Moloch. Yeah, it's good. It seemed like that extra story about kite surfing that went on for 15 minutes was superfluous, and there's no reason anyone would have done that. Like, spent other people's time by just talking about their hobby and their random interests, other than a conspiracy. Everybody knows lizard people are extremely long-winded. That's just science. <laughs> if this and sermon, they love retelling the Lord of the Rings from beginning to if, end. If, if you're doing a long Lord of the Rings thing and you're you're explaining about the, you know, the... What the little Balrogs are and everything, uh, I think that's uh, lizard people. Now, then, now we're getting, now we're cooking with gas because the conspiracy, and it gets people to go to church because the conspiracy is: is your pastor one of the lizard people? That's, oh, you got yeah. go to find out. Here's the thing: you, you may go. not know about lizard people; they can only know eight stories. <laughs> so if your pastor just kind of gets that eighth story. And then just keeps repeating himself. Like the next turn is like, hey, I ever tell you guys about that time in college I went to? I did? Huh. You'd be like, seven? Hmm. <laughs> That's a little suspicious. That's right. <laughs> Lizard people haven't seen any movies made after 2008. <laughs> if it's all movie references from 1983, you'd be like, this is a little suspicious. Yeah. And then they come, they pay attention to the sermon, they take notes. Pastor feels good about that. He doesn't know they're they're making lizard people journals, and everybody wins. Sure. That's, uh, we solved it, fellas. We solved it, and then we all get to lunch on time, and we all tip well, so that we can declare conspiracy emergency off. There you go. Now, we we have been accused of being in league with some nefarious forces, and of course we mm. are currently in league with Facebook. Yeah. But only to bring yeah. you the Bridge Livecast every Tuesday, 7.30 p.m. Chicago time. We're having a lot of fun. We certainly hope you will join us. And if you can't join us live in your time zone, it is archived on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thebridgechicago. And if you are one of the wise and blessed souls who never even made a Facebook page. Really, you're winning over all of us, but also you can still watch it. So if you if you want some links, just email us or uh, reach out to us, and you can watch that. Even if you don't have a Facebook page, but if you do have Facebook, you can line sign in. We'd love for you to join us live, get in the comments. It's a lot of fun. We're enjoying it. You can also sign up for Bridgebox, missionusa.com slash Bridgebox. Only $8 a month. Get songs, sermons, Bible studies, and a whole lot more into your inbox the first of every month. Missionusa.com slash Bridge box. All right, we jump to our first question here. If you hang on this all the way to the end, I use some ways to get touched. This first question comes in anonymously and it says, I don't like how I feel when I feel powerless. 
I've been tempted a lot lately to leave my program or to do bad things. Normally, there's a system I can work through to get what I want, but when I can't, it feels like I have to choose between safety and doing what I can to get what I want. How does God want me to deal with feeling powerless in my life? And uh, really an excellent question. I think that that theme of powerlessness is is something we all feel and something we all maybe process in different ways, but it's definitely there. And Glenn, where do we kick off with this? Well, I think it's a terrible thing to lose the power to make things worse. We really want to make things worse. We want to make them worse a lot. And that's the main thing we get upset about not being able to do. If you put up a sign and it says, don't walk on the grass, man, do I want to walk on the grass. Now, here's the thing about that. It's only going to hurt the grass. It's not going to benefit me. I'm going to make things worse. I want to do that, and you won't let me do that, and I am resentful of that. You know, we drive past a a sign that says, uh, you know, construction for the next five miles, reduce your speed by 20 miles an hour. We hate that. We want the power to drive faster and maybe kill somebody. And to have that taken away feels horrible. Now, I'm, of course, describing something insane, but this is actually how we all think. Uh, we, we hate to be forced into being responsible. We, don't, we, we actually don't like that at all. And uh, the more that that's put on us, the more we hate doing it. So, if, like, if there was a deadly disease and someone said, well, you could wear a mask, and you just hated that idea, that's because you, you want the power to make things worse. Uh, this is something we all go through. It's something we all feel. It, it, we don't acknowledge it because, you know, when I say it out loud, it does sound insane. Uh, but I think it's important to unearth that and bring it to the surface and recognize uh, that we're not being held back in any way from doing good things that make our lives better. And uh, so if we have that freedom to make things better, and to heal the world and uh, lift other people up and be an encouragement, uh, if, if that's not being taken away from us, we, we you know, we haven't. We, we haven't lost anything meaningful, and we, we have a lot of opportunities uh, for good things that we're not taking a hold of. So I think putting that in perspective, I think, is the first step. Uh, but, you know, there's another thing about feeling powerless, which, by the way, might be a good and helpful thing for you to experience because, you know, uh, it, the illusion that you could control things does lead to a lot of best up expectations, and it also gets us away from the idea that God's in control of things. But have you ever noticed how much you will put up with to the negative when your ego is being boosted while wow. it's happening? Wow. And we, we all have that friend that dates the worst possible person and refuses to break up with them because that, that's, there's an ego thing happening there. This person makes me feel a certain way. So I can't end this relationship or whatever it is. Same thing with work stuff. You know, this I feel a certain status at this job and or, or a certain amount of uh, money or whatever. It flatters my ego in certain ways. And so I'm just not going to leave this job even though it's killing my marriage and even though it's making me miserable, what have you. So we'll, we'll actually put up with things 
quite a little bit that that make us feel poorly and and powerless when our egos is being boosted so then that that begs the reverse question if you feel like your ego is under attack does that have a lot to do with why you suddenly you know in other words why do i want to walk on the grass it's because you are acting like it's your grass and you're just going to tell me what to do you're 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 violating my sense of ego that i get to walk wherever i want to uh, so I think we have to be honest about the ego element of that. Finally, and this is just, you know, as I hand this off to the other fellows and they can explore it in more detail, but how much of your life is about fighting something? I, I want you to really think about that. How much of it is I am enraged at something and I, my response is I have to fight it. So if that's politics, if that's um some injustice you think of in in the world if it's um you know uh, uh, problems with the environment we have to fight that's the you know uh, if that's a huge chunk of your life if you respond to that feeling of powerlessness uh in that sense of you know being restricted by fighting then your life is going to be miserable uh, you have the opportunity now to make the world a better place, but fighting is not how you get there. There are surprisingly few obstacles to, to you making the world a better place for yourself and for other people. It's about recognizing you do have that power, and you have the power to transform yourself, which is how those things take place, and that God gives you uh, all of these resources to improve these situations, you don't need to focus on a power to make things worse that's being denied you. It's an excellent place to start things off. And Leo, I'd love to get you to, to pick us up on this because one of the things that's going on, I think, in the question that needs to be addressed, and it's totally understandable, that feeling of powerlessness is kind of a, a false choice. It feels like our question askers uh, assuming they say, you know, I have a choice between safety and getting what I want, kind of when we have lost this kind of control element, this power element that Lynn's talking about, it can often feel like our our options are limited to kind of either suffer through in the right way or do something bad that's going to lead to more suffering. And I'm not <laughs> sure that's exactly accurate, is it? No, yeah, you're exactly right there. It's a It's a weird thing where when we get placed into a situation where, uh, you know, the only thing that the only thing that I can do is something I don't want to do. Um, and, and it's exactly what Glenn's talking about. It feels like we've been robbed of something. And this is not something that like God doesn't want to put you into a temptation situation or, or anything like that. But we have like, as people, we have a tendency to have this, um, we want help with something just as long, uh, right up until the point where we feel like we've learned it and now we're the masters of it and now we're in control of it. Um, and now I don't need any more help. The, the problem with our, with being people who have a relationship with God is that he will often put us in situations where we are out of control of it. We are not the master of it. We do not have uh, the abil ability to handle it because the relationship that he wants with us is a, is a relationship of dependence. 
And he wants us to lean into humility. He wants us to ask for his help. He wants us to depend on the, the, you know, the daily or moment by moment grace or power or whatever that he's, that he's offering to, to, to give to us, but not for us to take our, you know, take our situation in hand. It's so interesting when you talk to to people who are, you know, who have been in kind of a desperate situation and find themselves, you know, you know, like I, I think about people that I know who, are, who have been caught up in, in, you know, addiction and find themselves, you know, backsliding and in, in a, in a, you know, a rehab situation or something like that. And oftentimes when you first get on the phone with them, they are super pumped about their ability to be in control of this situation. Like, how are you doing, man? I'm doing amazing. I am crushing this. I am doing everything so awesomely. And it's like, well, hold on. <laughs> you, like, this is not what you wanted, but you super right. are coming at this. Like, you, this is exact. This everything's playing out exactly as you had planned. <laughs> you know, and and then you know, the the longer you talk to somebody in this situation, the more kind of those uh, defenses start to break down and, and the truth starts to come out, which is, man, I really need a lot of prayer and I need a lot of help and I need, and, and, and I need a lot of, uh, I need a lot of grace. And it's like, there we go. There you are, you know? And, and this is maybe the situation that, that, that the Lord wants to take a lot of us into it. And a lot of times, but it, it's, it's funny, like, you know, uh, Christy and I have three kids and, um, and we see this kind of same behavior with them often of like, I want your help right up until the point where I can be independent of your help and then see ya, you know, and, and then I'm going to take over and then I'm going to be in control of this situation. And for us as parents, we're like, hold on, we, we're not done with the relationship yet. Like we, we want to set up this situation in such a way that, yeah, we want you to be capable. We want you to learn some things. We want you to get some skills, but we want to retain a relationship with you. Um, the Lord often puts us in situations where he, uh, where, where he, uh, you know, gets us to a place where we have to confront our own weakness. And, and, and oftentimes the best way to handle that is to, is to go ahead and lean into the humility of, I still need God a whole awful lot. Uh, because I don't know what I'm doing. And that's a great way to kind of face these types of situations. I think it's a, an excellent point there. And Jed, I'd love to get you to, to pick us up on something Lee was talking about there that I think is, is very important, which is this idea of, uh, he's talking about somebody making, maybe being in denial and that yeah. being a way to en- engage in positivity. And in the same way that our your only choices aren't uh, do something destructive or do nothing, as Lee was talking about there. We also don't have to only choose between denial or despair. Yeah. And I think Glenn and Lee have both given us a lot of good stuff, and maybe we can talk more about that, that emotionality of c- confronting a situation where you have limited to no power, but you're still going to try to do your best in that situation. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. You know, I, I think one of the things that goes right along with the very funky, understandable to be clear, but but very funky attitudes that, that Glenn is describing, that Lee is describing, is a vision that you have of how life is for everybody else. Because for me, I'm in a situation where I feel powerless, but I imagine that there are other people in this world who can just do whatever they want. 
Mm. Just you know, there there are no rules, there are no limitations. They're they're just out there, just just living the good life, probably even laughing at me. And that's kind of um, I don't think we acknowledge that we're thinking that very often, but it's it's almost a requirement of a certain kind of self pity um, that 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 thought be in there. And here's the thing about this, and it's it's really important to be clear on this: everyone faces limitations on what they can do. Right. Absolutely right. everyone. There is literally no one on planet Earth who has the unchecked power to do whatever they want at all times with no restrictions. There is just no such thing as that. And so what it means for all of us is that we have a life where there are things that we can control and things that we can't. Um, yeah, the proportion may be different person to person, but the principle that there are things I have control over and things I do not, that's universal. Uh, and there's, there's actually no getting away from it. And so the real question becomes, where are you placing your focus? Mm. What are you, what are you thinking about? What are you, what are you ruminating on? Because this is the interesting thing is you've heard before, I'm sure, the advice to not um, play the comparison game, to not compare yourself to other people. And it's good advice, and it's actually highly biblical advice. This comes up in, in the Bible a lot. And here's what's interesting about it is it would be easy to say, right, so like you could say, well, I have it pretty hard, and other people may have it better than me, and I'm tempted to compare myself with them, and I, and I shouldn't do that. And, and one of the reasons that I think – um, that, that we try to, to say is don't compare yourself with other people because everyone's fighting a battle that you don't know anything about, which is true. Um, and because everyone's experience is different, which is true. And because, um, uh, what they look like from the outside versus what the reality of their life is lived out day by day, you know, um, uh, it, it may not actually add up and that's true. But this is the other thing is, there may be aspects of their life that are just plain better than yours. That that's true too. That that does happen, but here's the key thing. You're not in their life. If your focus is on their life, then by definition you can't possibly be doing something with your life. You you can't possibly be making the best of the situation that you're in purely on the basis of where your focus is. So, in other words, even if your fear that they this other person really does have it way better than you, even if that's true, in a lot of cases it's not, but, but even supposing that it was, that issue of focus is still holding you back. It's still keeping you from doing what you can do in your own unique life and in your own unique situation. There's one more thing that's important and worth looking at, and that is the issue of your attitude. Because... No matter what situation you find yourself in, uh, universally, without exception, that's the one thing that's always on the list of stuff that you can control is your attitude. Um, how you choose to think of yourself and your place in the universe, what your, your outlook is, what your worldview is, you do have control over that one. Um, uh, you may lose control of, of almost everything else, but you, you still retain control over that. And it turns out your attitude has an enormous 
uh, impact on your experience of life and your experience of external realities. Um, I don't want anyone preaching that sermon to me because I, I love having a bad attitude about things. Oftentimes, it's, it feels like my only comfort. But the, tr- yes. the truth is, you always have control over your attitude, and you will always be benefited by choosing moment by moment to take a godly attitude and a godly view of things. I think that's really true. That's all fantastic stuff from these guys. And one of the things you, you say in your question is the idea of, and you say or a couple of people, what do I do when I feel powerless? I have this feeling of powerlessness, which I think is an important distinction because a lot of these guys have pointed out, um, we're, we're all kind of powerless to certain things. You know, they, they shut the factory down. You don't have a job. You're not any more powerless or powerful than you were yesterday. What happened is you've been confronted with yeah. your powerlessness. Okay. And that really kind of ties into a lot of the emotional stuff Glenn was talking about uh, when he started us off of we're maybe projecting other things, other ideas, other uh, feelings and emotions we have onto a situation that's been put in front of us. And if you can take a deep breath, calm down, and look at things in that wider uh, angle lens all these guys are giving you, you're going to be in a much, much better position to deal with things move on to our next question here. It comes in anonymously and it says, how do I make things right with someone I've let down? And an excellent, excellent question. Lee, where'd we start off? I want to, I want to give two really dirt, simple, practical things on this. And there are two things that, um, none of my extended family have ever done. So, um, come on. and I'm trying to learn how to do them in my own life, having zero healthy examples ever to reference. Okay, here we go. Thing number one, it starts with an undefensive confession. Hello. Um, I did this thing. It was wrong. And I'm sorry. I hurt you. And I'm sorry. That, what that means is you don't give the five reasons for why... What you did, though hurtful, if you look at it, if you squint and you look at it from this point of view, it really was probably the right thing to do. What I did was probably right. So probably it's your problem that you were offended. Lee, if you uh, chose to be offended by my behavior, well, I'm, I'm sorry that you feel that way. I mean, I mean, I hate that you heard it that way, Jed. Absolutely. You know, but... So, and yeah, you know so, what? I do have a crime to confess here. I do have a sin, and that is caring too much. That's <laughs> guilty. You know what? Brand me with it guilty. That's the Michael Scott confession. And the, this is the thing. So, again, let me, let me be clear. No one in my extended family has ever pulled this off but an undefensive confession where you say, I love you, and I hurt you, and I'm sorry, and I do not defend myself. That's thing number one. It's hard to do. It's humiliating to do. It's uncomfortable to do. But that's where we start. Thing number two is show up in little ways. Show up. Everybody wants to make the big emotional movie promises, you know, where the music cascades and the orchestra plays. Don't do that. Just show up in little things. Yep. Um, I remember... Uh, several years ago when we we were having a, a discussion about family members and boundaries and and uh, and Jed said a really cool thing from the other side of this which was you've been hurt by a family member 
and you want to start letting that person back in your life, how do you do it? And I remember him saying, uh, why don't you set up a, a, a boundary that, that anybody that's trying hard can achieve, which is we're going we're gonna to meet at a neutral location. We're going to spend 30 minutes over a cup of coffee. And then I'm basically going to send that up as a test balloon to see how that person does with that 30 minutes. If they do well with the 30 minutes, then maybe next time we'll try like a full dinner hour and 15 minutes or something like that. If they do well with that, then maybe we will invite them over to the house. We're talking about a, a, a protracted plan of, of reentry, um, giving them more and more, uh, space. So basically what we're, and that was a cool idea and that was some great advice. So what we're looking at in, in, in your situation is I'm the person who offended. I'm the person who hurt someone else. So I let somebody down. So if I was going to look at Jed's advice to the person who got hurt, and, and if I was the fly on the wall listening to that, um, in, in your position, I would say, okay, then my job is to, in little ways, as I'm given the opportunity, show up and, and do what is expected. And that would be my, that would be my places to start is an undefensive confession and then not trying for the big flashy movie moment, but in small ways where I've been given an invitation or a green light, show up and be consistent. An excellent, excellent place to start this out for sure. And Joe, I'd love to, to get you to pick us up there because uh, one of the things we other we definitely also tried to model uh, over years on the podcast, and it's, it's, it can map onto this is the idea of an apology, yeah, an actual apology. It starts in the ways Glenn uh, and Lee have mentioned here, but it also ends in a specific way that I think is important here, which is, and here is the plan that this doesn't happen again. Yeah, And that is something we may want to look at in even kind of a, a more broad sense on this, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, the truth is talk is cheap, man. Um, it, it's actually interesting, just as a side note, and this is something kind of offline that all of us have been talking and joking about recently, is it's a bad sign when someone isn't even willing to lie to you. Uh, because with yeah. all kinds of stuff, there's a script and you don't have to mean it. I mean, you can just say, I am sorry that I hurt you. It was wrong of me to say those wrong, mean things. And I am sorry. And it will never happen again. I mean, literally, you could look up a script for an apology on Google. And then you could say it to someone over the <laughs> phone. You don't have to mean it. And so it is, it's instructive when someone is not even willing to lie to you. They're not even willing to, to engage in, in that level of... Um, uh, uh, token effort in, in order to, to write the ship. When we're at a point where it's, no, I refuse to acknowledge in any meaningful way that I even could have done anything wrong, that's, that's rough, man. That's, that's a tough situation. And so the final step of a, a real apology is the idea of this won't happen again. But and you, you should say that when you've wronged people, and, and you should mean it when you have wronged people. But there's, there's another part of this that's, that's really important, which is if you are very much along the lines of what Lee is talking about, if you are living a life where you show up in the little things, people will know that whether you've said those words or not. 
Um, yeah. Something. Give an example. One of the things that I've heard said in and around addiction recovery is that part of recovery means you make your bed every single day. Um, and you do that because you are refusing to live in chaos anymore. That, that much of an addictive, out-of-control mindset is a life where everything is disorder and chaos. And everything is uh, – there's no self-care. There's no attempt to, to do things in a, in, a, in a healthy way. And so it's, it's just all bedlam all the time. And so one of the ways that we're going to fight back on that is every single day we are going to get up and we are going to make our bed. Well, if you're a person who has historically never made any effort on anything – and one day you get up and you start making your bed, people in your life will notice. Yeah. I mean, word will get out. Um, there, There is a kind of credibility that comes from living a different and better and more responsible life that just can't be had any other way. And again, I, I can't emphasize this enough. Word will definitely get out. Like, Give an example. It, it had a lot to do with last week's um, uh, question. It certainly runs through this, but there we could be talking about it in the emergency. There are people who are arg- argumentative, like that is their only joy in life. That's the only thing that they care about is just getting in petty, unnecessary fights with people. And if you decide no, I'm going to start living a life of humility where I don't have to to win every conversation and and I don't have to make things unpleasant. If you begin to make that switch, man, people will notice and word will get out and folks will start wondering what kind of God got involved in your life that this could occur. (laughs) I'm serious. I, I promise you that's true. And so the thing of that, you know, you wonder, how do I make things right with people I've let down? If you start living a different, better life, when you actually go to the moment of having, just like Lee described, that that honest um, – Lee, remind me the phrase that you used because it's really good. An undefensive confession? An undefensive – yes. There you go. An undefensive confession. When you have that moment, I think you're going to have people forgiving you before you finished the sentences. Yeah. Because, because they know. They they yeah. know that you have changed. They they know and they sense that something is is different here. The thing where people run into problems, and we see this a lot in recovery, but it, it, it comes up in other places too, is in a sense wanting to be trusted on credit. Because right. that that bit about uh, this isn't going to happen again. You know, I'm going to make sure this never happens again. You're asking that person to trust you in that moment, and uh, if you haven't earned the trust for them to believe you, you probably shouldn't receive it. Trust is an, is an earned thing. Whenever we're asking for trust on credit, we start to get into problems. But if you start living a different, better, more responsible life, you're actually going to be earning trust before you even need to cash it in, and things are going to go way smoother. That's absolutely right. That is all excellent, excellent stuff. And Glenn, I'd love to get you to close out here, because I think there needs to be a bridge between these two things we're talking about here. And Jed is describing a lot of self-focus, a lot of internal work, a lot of doing things for yourself, which is super important and absolutely spot on. But then we're going to get to this point where we need to make an undefensive confession, where we need to exhibit this humility. And the sticking point between those, when we get to extra defensiveness, is when we take the posture of, I know you're shocked that I, bastion of all that is good and (laughs) positive, and your hero in so many ways, let you down. (laughs) 
Yeah. But I'm going to do my best to not do that. And that's where we get, you know, I mean, it was really the right thing to say. I may have expressed it in the wrong way. Yeah. But so how do we, we've, we want to come to a place of I'm doing this in a, I'm doing this work on myself. I'm trying to get the place, but then we need to make an apology. That's not about us. How do we pull that off? Well, first and foremost, it's about recognizing no apology is better than half an apology. Mm. And it seems counterintuitive. If I come with half an apology, that's at least half good. And that maybe I was only half wrong. So that about just about fits. Look, I I do a a counseling, like uh, uh, talking to married couples and that kind of thing. And, um, you think that that would be talking about things that people did wrong and then the fallout from that. That's never what I'm talking about. It's, it's, it's always a case of this wrong thing happened, and then after the wrong thing happened, everybody was on the wrong thing the rest of the way, and we never resolved that. If, if a wrong thing happens, we all learn from it, then there isn't anything you need counseling on. Uh, so it's really the response to something that has gone wrong that's mm. sort of the key to everything. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with exactly what Lee's talking about, a, a defensive apology, which is, you know, really, uh, it's just half an apology. It's like, <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, look, uh, I, this is the worst way to apology. Anybody has apologized that anyone has ever invented. Look, I think we're all a little bit wrong here. <laughs> um, you know, you're you're inviting me to take responsibility, like half the responsibility for what you did. That's not, you know, uh, part of what drives this, and it's what Matt was hinting at, is that you apologies go horribly wrong when you are trying desperately to make yourself look good in the middle of this. There it is. That is absurdly wrong, dude, and it should feel that way while you're doing it. If you've messed up, your image has gone down. This is not the time to try and bail it out by saying, look, I know you're hurt, but let's talk about me <laughs> and uh, what, what I was going through and how I ended up doing this. That sounds like excuse-making, which is poking giant holes in this apology. And things just go horribly wrong after that. Here's where we get into that, talking um, and making it be about ourselves. It's a half apology. I'm trying to make myself look good. Is we get caught up in intentions. Look, I didn't mean to step on your toes. Mm. Right. I get that you weren't like drawing up a plan like, you know, <laughs> Wiley e. Coyote that you would, you know, drop an anvil on my toes or whatever, but you stepped on my toe. My toe hurts the same whether you meant to or not. Mm. You're apologizing for the pain. No one accused you of intentionally stepping on my toes. You, there might have been an accusation that you weren't paying attention. You're caught up in your own little world. You can feel free to take the you know, responsibility for that. Uh, but, you know, intentions, are, they are somewhat relevant. It, it does, you know, it is the kind of thing you do want to stipulate that I, I don't 
feel this was not done in anger. That's not why this was done, or this was not done with the lack of whatever it is. Um, but you have to take responsibility on the back of that of saying, I should have been watching where I was walking. I should have respected the fact that you have toes and you don't want them stepped on. I should have taken you know, the blame for that earlier on rather than spin it out into a whole conversation about me and my intentions and so on and so forth. Resist the urge to make yourself look good. This is, I say this with love. You're kind of a schmuck, and so am I. You make mistakes. You look schmucky. That's it. Own it. It won't kill you. It won't be that big a deal. Other people will be like, yeah, you were a schmuck today, but, you know, generally you're a pretty good person. Because you take responsibility for things and you make changes, so we'll let that one slide. You, you're going to be a million times better off in other people's eyes if you can have that kind of attitude and exude that, look, this was just, I don't have an excuse and this was just wrong, period, the end. I'm taking 100% of the responsibility for this. There are not other rel, you know, relative, uh, uh, or relevant excuse me, uh, ideas behind any of that. It's about pulling up and saying, this is 100% what I'm taking responsibility for. And exactly as these brothers are saying, people can tell that you're real and honest on that. And they can tell when you are just, I don't know how many times you, you know, you and I have been in conversation with somebody that said, well, I'm sorry. And you're like, well, yeah, that kind of hurt my feelings. And the response is sort of like, they're trying to swallow the poison in that of like, yeah, well, no, I could see that your feelings were hurt, but yeah, but well, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry though. You're like, okay, it seems like you had more to say on that that you're not saying. Like you weren't entirely to blame because you didn't really mean to. It was just an accident. So maybe your toes weren't really hurt because I didn't mean to do it. Uh, so I think it's about recognizing if if you aren't at a place of humility where you can take responsibility for that, you're better off saying nothing than coming with half an apology. Look, yes, I peed on your shoes, but you left your shoes in the foyer. So, I mean, I think we all have a lot of culpability here and maybe we can all yeah. just move on. Let's now, all take responsibility for our part in this. Absolutely right. Now, I think that's all. Really fantastic stuff. And what it points to, there's a really key point that uh, Glenn made there, which I think ties this all together for me, is this idea that uh, it takes back to the defense and Lee was talking about, if you are trying to defend your own image in this, you are going to not only make a bad apology, you're going to come up looking a lot worse than you would have otherwise. This is a real kind of giveaway, lose your life to find it kind of thing. You need to focus on being as humble as possible. And that's going to give you the thing of looking as good as you can in this situation. Anything you do to try to fight off that humility is just going to dig that hole a lot deeper. And that's not what we want for you. Move on to our final question here. It comes in anonymously and it says, I've heard it said there's no wrong way to grieve. But 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Does that mean there is a wrong or unchristian way to grieve? I think it's a really, really cool question. And Jed, where would we start it off? 
Well, let's let's. Um, I know Lee and Glenn both are going to take you to the Bible Nerdatorium and give you all kinds of really awesome stuff on that. So, let's look at just some quick, basic things about grief. The short answer is no. There is not a wrong way to grieve. Um, so. Uh, Unfortunately, Christians in general are very uncomfortable with grief, and they're very uncomfortable with other people having negative feelings, and they really in general want for people who are having negative feelings to stop having them as soon as possible um, because it's making us all uncomfortable. So if you could just not feel what you're feeling, that would be great. We want to cancel all that and set that aside. No, there's not a wrong way to grieve, man. Um, That said, grieving is a process that is meant to go somewhere. Uh, Let's let's kind of unpack that a little bit. Um, Grief is dealing with loss. Now that there's all kinds of loss in the world. There's the obvious one where someone that you care about has passed away. There's the loss of a relationship, whether that's a a breakup or a divorce. There's the loss of a job. Um, There is, uh, you know, the the loss of just a platonic friendship. Um, There's there's loss of possessions. You know, you're you're you had your your favorite car and you got in a car wreck and you don't have that anymore. And that's that's a real sense of loss. So there's there's a lots of different kinds of loss. Grieving very, very loosely is about a journey of going from this loss has occurred to landing at a place where we can accept that this loss has occurred and, God willing, we can move forward in our lives with a sense of hope, right? So, um, in the sense of a maybe you went through a bad breakup, right? You are allowed to feel a sense of loss about that, um, and you are definitely allowed to grieve that, and that's and it's cool for that to look like whatever it, it looks like. Um, ultimately, we want to land on a place of accepting that you have been through a breakup. You are no longer dating this person. Um, it, it, if you never reached a point where you were clear on that, that would be bad. Uh, that, that would make it very difficult for you to move forward in your life. Um, but we also do want to have with it a sense of hope. You know, maybe this was a great relationship. Maybe it wasn't uh, the best, but I learned things from it that can help me to have better relationships in the future. And on that basis, I feel a sense of hope as I move forward. This is, this is the goal. This is the thing that we want to do. So what this presents are some left and right limits. If we get into a, into a season where it is grieving just without end and we're never really getting to a place of acceptance, that doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that you're grieving wrong. It doesn't mean that you're a bad Christian. It does mean that would be a good time to go see a counselor and talk to someone about your loss. Yep. That's that's what it means. Um so that that's kind of a good left and right limit. Another one is that um, there are some classic tools people use to not want to feel their feelings that are very understandable, but they don't actually help us to move towards that journey of acceptance. So um, uh, getting completely blitzed, whether it's you know on a drug or alcohol, 
doesn't in any way help you get any closer to acceptance. Um, uh, going and having inadvisable sex with people doesn't actually help you get any closer to a place of acceptance. We can even set aside whether those things are moral or not, and you've read the Bible. You already know the answer to that. Um, but for purposes of this discussion, they're not really helping us get where we're going on this journey. They're, they're not helping us get to a place of, of acceptance. They're, they're just kind of kicking the can down the road. And so they are, on that sense, they're, they're not the best idea. But again, we want to be crystal clear here. If you have lost something, whether that's a person or a relationship or an opportunity, whatever it is, it is okay to be sad. It is okay Amen. to grieve. You are allowed to feel how you feel. Other Christians do not get the right to tell you that you are wrong to feel how you feel, and no matter how many Bible verses they quote at you. That said, we do want to move, however long it takes, towards a place of acceptance that is coupled with hope about our future, because we know there's every reason for you to have hope for your future. We believe in you, and we've got your back. That is the place to start us off. That's, that's definitely an excellent groundwork to lay down. And Glenn, where do we go next? No two people grieve the same way. Uh, so the idea that there, if there was a right way to grieve, the only one person at most could be doing it, I guess, is, is what those numbers suggest. So that's not it. Um, also, the, the Bible isn't saying there is one right way to grieve. Uh, you might have read that into that verse, but it's not in there. Uh, it's saying that we grieve different. Uh, than other people grieve, particularly in this case of First Thessalonians uh, 4.13. is talking about grieving a death. Uh, but the fact is that people who have hope are actually grieving something different than people who don't have hope. Uh, that is to say, we're grieving something that's lost for now, and that's different from someone who's grieving something that's lost from now on. Those are two different things we're grieving, but we're both grieving. They are different from the, the, the type of grieving process or whatever are going to be different from one to the other because we're grieving a different type of situation that we're perceiving that's going on here. Within that, everyone grieves in their own way and they process those things in their own way. So you're very much right to focus on the fact that there is no wrong way to grieve. Uh, but if you want to get to the root of what this verse is really trying to talk to you about, it's trying to talk to you about where is the hope within that grief, that those two things aren't mutually exclusive. In other words, part of what you may be trying to say to yourself is, well, if I have hope, then I just won't care when people die. It'll be like, <laughs> oh, I'll see them again. No biggie. But that's, that actually, that does not make sense. You, you're, you're not going to see them for a while, and you're going to miss them horribly. And there's a, 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 a phase of this relationship that has come to an end, obviously. And uh, it's, it's right to find the right way for you to process that and work through that grieving process. And we've got your back on that. Absolutely right. That is really, really excellent stuff. And Lee, where do we close this discussion out? Well, um, first of all, I have to completely agree with where these guys are going. I mean, I think that the whole reason this happens is because for some reason 
Christians have said, well, we believe in heaven, so you're not allowed to be sad when someone dies. Um, I can be sad. You can shut up. That's the way that <laughs> yeah. goes. So um, not only that, the one who has the power over death was sad when one of his friends was dead. Um, and in John chapter 11, Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus and bawled his eyes out. So uh, let's everybody take a few steps back from that. Um, the other thing is, you know, I, I, you know, Jed mentioned the, uh, the Bible nerditorium and, and it, there is an important thing there is in that verse, when you look at the original language and anybody can do this, you can go to biblehub.com and you can type in the verse and you can hit a little button called interlinear. And what you find is that, um, that the, 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 like that the whole thing about grief in that verse, it's not actually the verb. It's a participle, which means you take a verb and you turn it into an adjective. It's a passive word. Um, it, in, the, in the original language, it says, uh, we don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep so that you wouldn't be grieved uh, just as the rest of those who have no hope. Um, we, we have this this idea that that we've got a whole lot of volition and intention and choice about grief. But the way Paul lays out this verse is um, that grief is something that happens to you. Um, yeah. You know, when we talk about everybody grieves in a different way, that's because when you lose somebody, grief is something that you sort of become a victim of. And I, I, I don't, you know, I mean, we we want our faith to to have a part in that process and everything. But this, when Paul is laying this out, he's not laying this out as somebody where he's saying, grab hold of the steering wheel and drive the grief. Don't be like everybody else. You need to take control of your grief and you need to grieve in this way because we're Christians and we believe in heaven and whatnot. No, the way that Paul lays it out is grief happens to you, man. And uh, Jesus understood that, and Paul is saying, I understood that. There's actually a place in Philippians uh, chapter 2 where Paul talks about how he, he longs to send back to this, this group of people a guy named Epaphroditus. He said, I, I long to send back to you Epaphroditus, who is my fellow, uh, my brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. He says, uh, he longs for all of you. And is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God spared him to save me. To, but God uh, rescued him and, and healed him to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. So the guy that we're referencing who wrote the verse in First Thessalonians says, If I had lost Epaphroditus, I would have had sorrow upon sorrow. Um, so we need to take this whole thing in the context of... If I lose one of my friends, you better believe I'm going to be sad. That grief is not going to be the verb of the sentence. It's going to be a participle. It's going to happen to me. Um, and yes, I believe in heaven. And yes, I believe I'm going to see them again. But I'm allowed to be sad about that. Um, and I'm allowed to go buy a whole lot of ice cream and just have an ice cream bender. So everybody get out of my way. 
Um, and I think that's an important thing that we need to understand here is that that's a that when people say that thing, that's a it, it's kind of a reaction against this Christian attitude that somehow since we believe in heaven, we're not going to be sad when people died, which doesn't make any sense when you just read the New Testament. Oh, it's all really fantastic stuff. I think that adds an amazing layer to what we've been talking about here. And if you, I'm thinking about it, if you take that another way, because he just says, just so you don't, just so you are not grieved like other people who have no hope. Now, some people automatically read that as you should not be as sad as people who have no hope, which is also kind of super not in there. It's just talking about, as, as Glenn and Jed have mentioned, a different type, because as we're saying here, if you kind of believe that, you know, life is nasty, brutish and short and death is just kind of the end of all things, then you have you can logically lay out your reason to grieve. I, I am grieved for these things and this is the big deal. So when you take that in the context of what, what Lee's saying there of for Christians, really heaven, maybe that's not the same logical thing, but we have just the same grief. It comes upon us. It it tugs at us. There's something kind of more beautiful and more mysterious about grieving that, you know, death, death wasn't a part of a pre-fallen world. We're, we're also, grieving something. Go when for it. I'm, I'm sorry, Matt, but also when I'm dead, I hope you guys are sad. I mean, holy crap. <laughs> yeah. Don't be one of those weirdos. Who's like, I just hope everyone's an amazing party and no one's sad when I die. That's weird. Don't say that to people. That's we, we will, whoever, uh, you know, Puts on Lee's funeral home. There will just be so much ice cream. It will just be wall to wall. Thank you. Ice cream. And it, it will be what he would have wanted. But there's <laughs> this idea, and I love that kind of maybe part of what this verse is saying is you don't have to have a logical thing. You don't need to explain your grief. You don't have to justify that. This is a feeling that has come on you. The Lord has put on your heart. There's, there's a, a twinge and a sadness, and there's some mystery and some. Uh, some some depth going on there, and that's fine. We can acknowledge that. So when we come to the practical of whether it's ice cream bender or whether it's sitting around feeling sad or whether it's you know t- kind of getting having the inappropriate giggles at the wake, which we've all done, whatever it is, whatever your process on that is, you don't have to justify that. I think that's a big part of what's going on in this. You don't have to sit down and say this is why this warrants sadness, and you don't have to explain to anyone this is why. This is how I deal with this. Grieve in your own way, and God honors that. All right, if you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com. We do hope you can join us Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. Chicago time for the Bridge Livecast. We're going to take out with a song from said Bridge Livecast. This is a song you're probably familiar with in maybe a way you're not super familiar with it. This is the bridge version of Jesus Loves Me. Take out that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. Breaking news. The lizard people are trying to control your computer and keep you from forwarding a link to this podcast. Don't let their satanic plan succeed. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. All right. 
We're starting to get warmed up. Now the good news is, that's the whole song. That's all the words you got to worry about. So now, take it back to the top and try it again. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus One more time. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. All right, now, I'm having a good time. I hope you're having a good time. So now that we're starting to feel it, let's take it back, all the way back to the start. Just one more time. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. 